Hello, and welcome to Grand Final History. I'm Kieran McGee, and in this episode, we go back to 1909 and see if the all-conquering Carlton can go on to a fourth premiership under the first supercoach, Jack Worrell. Or would one of the challengers be able to claim the title? And how would the new teams, Richmond and University, perform in their second year? Would they have second year blues, or could they make it to the finals? 1909 was the 13th season of the VFL. In Australia, it was a year that saw some turmoil in the federal government, as Prime Minister Andrew Fisher's minority government was replaced by the Commonwealth Liberal Party, led by Alfred Deakin, who became Prime Minister for the third time in June 1909. All of this action was taking place in Melbourne, which was the temporary capital of Australia before Canberra was established. So maybe some of the MPs were going to the football on Saturday as a break from politics. And more people were going to have the opportunity to go to Saturday afternoon football in Victoria with the introduction of a half-day holiday on Saturdays, where nearly all shops would close on Saturday afternoon, except for pharmacists, restaurants and cooked meat shops. There would be an extension to Friday night trading to 10pm to make up for the loss of Saturday afternoon and evening trading. Up to this point, there had been a half day for many shops on Wednesday, and there was a Wednesday football league that had a healthy following. Sadly, with the end of the Wednesday half day for retail, the Wednesday league itself was going to have to shut down, albeit spectators would now have the chance of going to VFL or VFA games, and some of the Wednesday league players were picked up by the VFL clubs. From May 1, up to 20,000 shopkeepers and their staff would join the many thousands of other workers who already had the Saturday afternoon off. The numbers at BFL games would increase even further. As reported in the Argus, the opening round saw a big increase where games that normally saw 10 to 15,000 attracted crowds of 50,000. But on Saturday night, the formerly busy shopping strips of Sydney Road, Smith Street, Chapel Street and more were missing the laughter, chatter and bustle of Saturday night promenaders. In the lead up to the season, many clubs had their annual general meeting. At the St Kilda AGM, members were asked to vote in a referendum in favour of the VFL registering professional players. Charlie Mullaney, a former player and member of St Kilda's Finance Committee, spoke in favour of the proposition, pointing out that there was plenty of money in the game and that payments were already being made by various illicit means. He called out the hypocrisy of league delegates threatening to resign on principle if professionalism was introduced, and yet these same delegates would return to their own clubs and oversee illicit payments to their own players. The referendum passed easily, 477 saying yes, 224 St Kilda members against. The Paran Telegraph let its feelings be known with an article headline, Rigged Financial Statements Rung In, accusing the league of being hidebound hypocrites. There was plenty more articles from the Paran Telegraph reinforcing these themes in the coming weeks. On a more positive note, there were now more ambitious efforts to promote the game in the United States. After several years of hosting Sydney schoolboys during the VFL finals, there was now an effort to arrange a tour of 40 Californian schoolboys, members of the Columbia Park Boys Club in San Francisco. They had been taught the Australian game by Pat O'Day, a Melbourne player from the VFA days who had ended up in America and become a successful gridiron player, famous for his punt kicking, becoming the only known Australian to be elected to the Football Hall of Fame at Rutgers State University. Also fostering the Australian game was Mr C. Leinen, who had played for Fremantle, 
a club that existed up to 1899 in the Western Australian Football Association. The idea of the trip was initiated by Mr J Simmons, the Secretary of the Western Australian Football League. Forty American schoolboys eventually arrived in Melbourne on the 23rd of July. There was a belief, perhaps a hope, that the Australian game would be able to take root in the United States, given the American football was seen as too rough. The group of boys from California carried the hopes of a nation. A large crowd welcomed their arrival at Spencer Street Station, having caught the train from Sydney, where they had first stepped ashore. The boys marched behind their band through the city to a welcoming luncheon. The boys were entertained for a week. They played a combined Victorian schoolboys team on the MCG and did well, losing by two goals. They have the honour of being the first Americans to play the Australian game on the MCG, well before the likes of Mason Cox and others. One other event of 1909 is worth noting, even though it happened in Sydney, where the Australian game is growing strongly according to the league, in the second year of the new Rugby League competition, the grand final was won by South Sydney, where their opponents, Balmain, forfeited. Balmain were not happy that the Rugby League grand final was to be a curtain raiser to a test match between the Union Wallabies and the League Kangaroos, the Wallabies making the effort to play under league rules. The South Sydney team had to take to the field, but that was enough to win the Premiership. A forfeit would never happen in the VFL. Although Richmond had lost the VFA Grand Final forfeiting to North Melbourne in 1904 over a dispute about the choice of umpire. Hard to see the broadcasters and administrators of either competition allowing clubs to forfeit a Grand Final these days. The season started on the 1st of May with much anticipation. The Herald provided a large double-page spread to preview the opening round. Kikaro shared news of the new recruits and the training and the preparation that many of the clubs had gone through. Melbourne were ensuring their players would not be distracted by clearing out the dressing rooms, except for players and trainers, by 10 to 3 each Saturday. And, in a revolutionary move, they also banned smoking in the rooms. It'd be quite a while before that innovation took hold. Kikaro thought with the strengthening of teams, the competition had been levelled up and the contest would be even closer this year. The Herald cartoon to celebrate the opening of the season was a little darker than the Kikaro's enthusiasm. It showed a hen, labelled as The League, hovering over a football egg with a number of characters hatching their way out. These included the hoodlum barracker, the professional footballer and the bookmaker. The caption had the League hen saying, Well, I suppose I hatched the same old chicks, but I hope to kill a few off this season. There's a copy on the website for you to have a look at. Observer in the Argus was also optimistic about the upcoming season, while also pointing out the need for the league to enforce punctuality on the start time and the length of half-time, so games finished in daylight rather than dusk. He also called out the need to crack down on the growing tendency for sly elbows and punches when the umpire and player were distracted. The upset in the first round was University defeating Carlton, who had unfurled their new premiership flag in front of the students but at the end of the game, it was University in front by 15 points. Several Carlton players were not available for the game, but it was still felt the Blues would be too good. Perhaps times were changing in the VFL. Collingwood opened their season by opening their new grandstand. This provided comfortable seating for many Collingwood supporters, as they then watched their team lose the opening game to neighbouring rivals Fitzroy. Round 2 saw drama at the Richmond vs University game at Punt Road. 
William Burns of Richmond had been carried off the ground early in the game. It was feared that he had internal injuries and doctors suggested that he should go to hospital. But late in the game, when it seemed that Richmond might lose, Burns went back out onto the ground. Almost immediately he took a magnificent mark landing on his shoulder as he came to the ground. He then scored the winning goal and was carried from the ground when the final bell rang. Not clear if he then went to the hospital or enjoyed the win in the changing rooms. St Kilda had not started the year well and things got worse in June. In round six they won their second game for the season, beating Geelong by one point down at the Cryo Oval. But the result was then reversed. St Kilda had selected Billy Stewart, even though he had been suspended by the Bendigo League a week before for striking. St Kilda tried, unsuccessfully, to claim that the league had not been notified of the suspension, and for the only time in league history, a club lost the points for playing an ineligible player. There have been other similar findings, but those were reversed on appeal. St Kilda would only win two games for the entire season. Round 11 saw one of the matches of the season. South Melbourne had only lost one game all season. Carlton had been slow to start. There were reports of tension within the club, and they did not have the unity of previous years. But the game was on at Princess Park. At half-time, South were four goals up. Carlton had not scored a goal. Early in the third quarter, the Blues kicked their 12th point on the trot. Then, something snapped. In 20 minutes of football, Carlton scored nine goals one to nothing to take over the game and remind all that despite their troubles, they were still a formidable team looking to win their fourth premiership in a row. But the troubles at Carlton were not over yet. The following week they played Collingwood at Victoria Park and lost by one point. On the Wednesday the players met and they declared they no longer wanted Jack Warrell to be their coach and for their skipper, Fred Pompey Elliott, to take over the coaching role. Players were reported to have been tired of Worrell's discipline, his style and as always there was talk of money involved as well. A group of players had threatened to leave if the coach was not sacked. Despite leading his team from the bottom of the ladder to three premierships in a row, Jack Worrell's time was over. Even though the club's committee backed Worrell at a meeting on the Tuesday, Jack told the committee that he would resign in the best interest of the club. The final round of the season found South on top of the ladder, level with Carlton on points but with a better percentage. South had to win its final game to be sure of taking the all-important right to challenge. Fortunately, they were playing St Kilda and it would have been a real upset if they were to lose, as the Saints' success of recent years had faded away and they were back in their familiar wooden spoon territory. Carlton were playing Essendon who were sitting fourth, but Melbourne were pressing them. If Melbourne could beat third place Collingwood, they would replace Essendon and play in the finals for the first time in several years. But all the results went as expected, and despite losing to Carlton, Essendon remained in fourth spot when Melbourne lost to Collingwood. The first semi-final would see a replay of the final round when second place Carlton would take on Essendon and the following week's second semi-final would be South versus Collingwood. The first semi-final was played at the MCG in front of 40,000 people. Carlton had overcome their mid-season challenges with dissension between players, the sacking of Triple Premiership coach Jack Worrell, more rumours about illegal payments to win 13 of the last 14 games, erasing the poor start to the season. They were justifiably the favourites for the game. The league had ensured it would reap an appropriate reward for the clubs 
and the charities that received a donation from the VFL by increasing the cost of getting into the grandstand from one shilling to one shilling and sixpence. It was still only a shilling to get into the ground. Some were sure to claim that the league was just showing greed by raising the entrance fee for the stand, but the crowd numbers indicated that plenty of people thought it was still a fair price. The game looked close up to half-time on the scoreboard, but Carlton had been making all of the running and were taking advantage of the fine conditions to play a fast game of football that left Essendon doing their best to play catch-up. In the second quarter, Carlton had got out to a 20-point lead, but the same olds rallied and narrowed the gap at half-time when the score was Carlton 7 goals 4 to Essendon's 5 goals 1. The Blues took firm control in the third quarter, kicking 5 goals to Essendon's single major. As many spectators took a chance to catch an early tram or train home. The last quarter was a tame affair, with Essendon having to play out time and Carlton confident of their win. While the game saw higher scores than the 1908 grand final between these two clubs, the result was effectively the same. Carlton had won and Essendon's season was over. The Blues' chance for a fourth flag was still alive. The second semi-final between South and Collingwood had 35,000 people attending. There was a strong wind blowing towards the punt road end, and that might explain the scoring in the first half. After the first quarter, South led three goals four to Collingwood's single behind. But in the second quarter, it was South that could not score, and Collingwood evened the game up with scores South three goals four to Collingwood now three goals six. Collingwood supporters might have thought they were a chance to see their team generate an upset, but South had only lost four games all season, and they showed their superiority in the second half. The Red and Whites scored six goals in the third quarter and another in the last against the wind, while Collingwood only managed three goals across the third and fourth quarters as their season came to a close. Final scores were South 10 goals 8 68 to Collingwood 6 goals 11 47. South would be taking on the Blues to see who would be Premiers. Collingwood had tried all avenues to achieve victory in the semi final, including doping on oxygen at half-time. It was reported in the Argus after the game that the club had invested in two oxygen cylinders and each player put on a face mask and inhaled the oxygen for five to seven minutes. This was supervised by Collingwood's medical officer, Dr McGillicuddy. The consensus seems to have been that in terms of stimulants, whiskey tasted better. Whether there was any impact or not on the player's condition was not clear and South dominated the game after half-time which was not a good endorsement of the oxygen doping. The final was scheduled for Saturday the 25th of September. As in previous years, there would be a curtain raiser between the schoolboys of Melbourne and a schoolboys team from Sydney. The Argus listed the two teams, providing each player's height, weight and employment. There was a zoologist, a mill owner, a blacksmith, a jeweller and other assorted trades. Carlton had seven tea graders on their side. Rather than indicating an enthusiasm for Earl Grey or Irish breakfast, it is considered that this was a ruse by the Blues to cover the fact that these players were earning their living by playing football. But since we all know that the game was officially an amateur game, there is no way that a team like Carlton would stoop to such tactics, surely. Although South had finished the season on top of the ladder, albeit by percentage only, Carlton seemed to be the favoured team in the press. The problem for the Blues is they would have to beat South twice to overcome the right to challenge. More than one commentator had noted that South's win over Collingwood had been more by force than by science, 
and this methodology was unlikely to be successful against the more experienced and settled Carlton team. The sides had met twice during the season for one win each. Maybe South's win could be discounted a little, as it took place in the second round, where the Blues were going through their unsettled period. 40,000 people gathered at the ground, and they were destined to see a game marred by spitefulness, and the umpire was forced to intervene, and many free kicks were awarded. Despite the warnings of the press, South had decided to play the man rather than the ball, and it was not helping their cause. Even though South took an early lead, the Blues, with a stronger focus on the game, were able to pull off a 22-point win. The Premiership would be forced into an additional week, with one final game to decide the champion of the season. Observer, writing in the Argus, said that South had been overly physical, and in particular, South swingman Jim Caldwell was noted for his rough play. Caldwell was reported by the umpire for striking George Bruce. The resulting suspension meant that he missed the grand final and the start of the following season. In the lead-up to the final, the Argus had promoted an innovation that is still with us today, in slightly different formats. It was the first popular vote for champion player of the league. Votes had to be cast on a coupon cut from the paper and sent into the Argus, helping to promote the sales of the paper and postage stamps at the same time. 64,800 votes were recorded for the best VFL player and about 40,000 votes for the best VFA player. Over 105,000 votes had to be counted by hand. No online or SMS voting in those days. The winner in the VFL was Bill Bursbridge of Essendon, one of the finest centre-halfbacks in his era, with 16,592 votes. This was the first popular vote involving supporters, and it's an innovation that remains in the game today. The grand final was played on the first Saturday of October for the first time. The umpire for this game would again be Jack Elder for his second grand final. He had umpired the previous week's game, and there were some rumours that South would not take the field if Elder umpired, given that he had reported Jim Caldwell. But the South committee quickly quashed such talk. Carlton's captain, as for their previous campaigns, was Fred Pompey Elliott. However, this time he had coaching duties as well. In the Herald on the Friday before the game, Fred Elliott said that Carlton were faster, heavier and had more dash than South in the previous week's game, but now he thought they were in better nick than last week. Sure to give their supporters reason to be optimistic. South would be led by captain coach Charlie Ricketts, a champion rover. He had started his career at Richmond in the VFA, moving to South in 1906 and taking over as captain coach in 1909. In his preview of the game, Charlie was quick to praise Carlton, describing them as a warm side. He still thought South were a chance, saying, with a bit of luck, we will win on Saturday. Not the most dramatic of statements, but perhaps realistic when considering the well-deserved reputation of the Blues. South also had to manage three changes to the team. Jim Caldwell was suspended and was replaced by Horry Drain. Richard Casey, a short, energetic and sometimes aggressive player, had injured his knee, and also former captain and fullback Bill Dolphin was injured. Their replacements were Ed Wade and Robert Dees. Carlton had one change with defender Norm Clark dropped for disciplinary reasons. The curtain raiser would be the state school's final between Albert Park and St Kilda at 1.30. The Sydney schoolboys had been down for the previous week, but that turned out to be the preliminary final for this grand final. Bicycles were allowed to be brought into the ground, but were not permitted to be in the grandstands. 
The usual trains brought spectators from all over the state, and locals had learned from the previous games that they'd paid to arrive early and avoid the crush. However, there were only 37,000 at this game, compared to the 45,000 at the final the week before. One of the downsides of the Argus system, where the right to challenge was required, was fewer people at the grand final versus what had become the preliminary final. People that had gone to the first final may not have been able to get to the second match, the game that became the grand final. This game is the earliest example of a VFL game on film. The footage is available from the National Film and Sound Archive YouTube channel. It shows the crowds at the MCG, men with their suits, collar, ties and hats, women in large dresses and very, very large hats. I would not like to be sitting behind them. And even then, when the camera scanned around the spectators, there were plenty of people trying to have their moment of fame. It's not how we're used to seeing the game now, with only one camera, in one position, with a fixed focus, but it is a marvellous glimpse into football of that era. Carlton players in two types of jumpers, some in the blue monogram jumper that is instantly recognisable, but others in the earlier Carlton jumpers, navy blue with a white yoke. South Melbourne at that time wore a white jumper with a red sash, but even then some of the sashes started on the right shoulder while others started on the left shoulder. The goal umpires did not seem to have any uniform and the flags were left on the ground were not in use. The gap between the boundary line and the fence looks very small, which makes you wonder how the crowd fitted onto the ground on those occasions where the fence had broken down in previous grand finals. Well worth spending 10 minutes to watch the play and see how the game has changed and how other parts of the play could be from any match played today. Carlton were on the ground first, strolling out with their mascots, young boys in Carlton jumpers, followed shortly after by South Melbourne. Umpire Jack Elder bounced the ball to start the game, and Carlton were the first to move the ball into their forward line, but South's defenders were able to repel this initial attack. Then George Malley Johnson kicked the ball forward for Carlton, and George Topping took the mark and had a shot for goal, but only scored a point. Nerves may have been playing a part in this do-or-die game, as both teams missed set shots and goals proved hard to collect in the first quarter. The teams were testing each other out and there were plenty of free kicks being awarded as the umpire sought to maintain control. When the bell rang, South had 10 free kicks to Carlton 7. The scores, though, were level on 5 points each. The second quarter saw Carlton push forward again. Harvey Kelly kicking the ball to George Topping who made sure of his shot this time and got Carlton's first goal of the game. South made an attack into their forward line, but Carlton's defender, Doug Gillespie, repelled for the Blues. Shortly afterward, Carlton's Jack Backey injured his ankle and was carried from the ground, leaving the Blues a man short in this tight grand final. South's ruckman, Albert Franks, was able to pick up their first goal, and this was followed up soon after when their captain, coach Charles Ricketts, got South second. The ball was moving back and forth, and still goals were proving hard to score. Even when Frank Silver Kane picked up the ball and ran right up to the goal, just two metres from the line, he still managed to miss, his drop kick coming off the side of his boot, causing a roar of disappointment to rise up from the Carlton supporters and possibly some laughter from the South supporters. As the quarter was coming to an end, the Blues pushed forward again. This time Kelly got the ball to George Topping, who aimed truly this time and put the ball through the goals. 
just as the bell was ringing to announce half-time. When the season ended, both Carlton and South were on 14 wins. At half-time in the grand final, both teams were level on two goals nine. The final two quarters would see which of these evenly matched teams could get ahead and claim the premiership. The third quarter saw Jack Backey return to the ground after his injury. He moved to the forward line to the cheers of the Carlton supporters. South got off to a quick start when Albert Franks got the ball to Alf Goff, who passed on to Len Mother Mortimer. He had earned his nickname by the way he cradled the ball to his chest, as if holding a child. Known as an accurate kick, he had missed several gettable shots in the first half, but kicked truly this time and moved South a goal ahead. But the lead was not to last long. The Blues had moved forward and the injured Jack Backey was dragged down and given a free kick in front of goal. He converted accurately and tied the scores up again. South then had a flurry of shots but could not get full value for them. Tom Grimshaw had a shot but kicked badly. Then Mother Mortimer had another chance but despite his reputation as an accurate kick, he continued to have a terrible game in front of goal, hitting the post with just one behind. Then Tom Grimshaw had another shot but just managed to hit the other post. The ball moved back into Carlton's forward line and Frank Silver Kane marked cleanly. But, like many before him, he kicked inaccurately and just added another behind. South moved the ball forward in a flash and Tom Grimshaw had another shot, but again scored another behind. With three shots in this third quarter, he could have made himself the hero of Clarendon Street, but poor kicking meant the game was still tight. In Tom Grimshaw's defence, he had come down heavily in the first quarter and it took the trainers a long time to get him on his feet again. In today's game, he probably would have been off the ground, but there were no concussion protocols in that era. Sent from the back line to the forward line, he was clearly not fully settled. At times, he was sitting against the goalpost until the ball came into the forward line. Martin Gotts from Carlton got caught up in a crush of three players and injured his ankle and had to leave the ground. The Blues were again a man short and Jack Blackie was still limping around as he tried to help out in the forward line. The loss of a player may have contributed to a disorganised Carlton backline. Alf Goff took advantage of this confusion to kick South's second goal for the quarter and give them a lead at three-quarter time. South, four goals 12, 36, seven points ahead of Carlton on three goals 11, 29. South was said to have maintained a fast, forceful and systematic play. Carlton perhaps surprised at being challenged so successfully, were not their usual cool, systematic self. The Blues were a little flustered. The rain started falling at the start of the fourth quarter, but the game was too close for this to provide an advantage. The crowd was roaring and the players were desperate. Carlton made the first move into their forward line, but without success. Then it was back into South Melbourne's end. It looked like they were going to get a goal at any moment, but that moment just would not come. South's backman John Scobie moved into the forward line and had a shot at goal, but he could do no better than the regular forwards. And then it was a Carlton counter-attack. Mally Johnson got the ball going their way, and Harvey Kelly took a mark deep in the forward pocket, right up against the boundary line. The angle was tight, and there was barely daylight between the big sticks. The crowd was hushed. His kick was straight, and Carlton had their fourth goal, and the supporters began to believe they were on their way to a fourth premiership in four years. South were only two points up. The play moved from one end of the ground to the other, as noted by observer in the Argus, moving back and forth like a pendulum. South's big ruckman Albert Franks took two telling marks deep in the back line to hold the Blues out. 
Carlton regathered the ball and pushed forward a third time. But it was full time that stopped them now, the bell ringing out to end the season and the game. South premiers by two points. You can see the joy in the players and the supporters rushing onto the ground in the film taken on the day. It must have been two of the most evenly matched teams in the history of the game. Both won the same amount of matches over the season. In the four games between them, they were two wins each. And in the grand final, after needing the right of challenge, South had the advantage when needed by two points. Carlton had sacked their coach halfway through the season and still almost picked up a fourth flag. Truly one of the champion teams of any era. But in 1909, the Premiers were South Melbourne. Four goals 14-38 to Carlton. Four goals 12-36. When South's Charlie Ricketts was asked his opinion of the game that gave South their first Premiership in 19 years, all he had to say was, You saw the game and know as much as I do. The best team won. In the much quieter change rooms of the Blues, Fred Pompey Elliott said that it was a great game and the best team had won. They had a couple of men injured, but that was part of the game. It still could have gone either way, but they could look back with pride on the three previous premierships and congratulate South on having beaten a good side. During Saturday night, Clarendon Street rang with shouts of joy and the Golden Gate Hotel was surrounded by crowds who cheered the South Melbourne team and their well-known president, Mr Henry Skinner. Red and white flags were on show all over the suburb, and despite the celebrations, the police did not have to lock anyone up. South had a busy week following their victory over Carlton. During the week, they travelled to Hamilton to be entertained and to play against a Hamilton district team. All went well, and South won the game easily, in front of a large crowd of locals and those from the surrounding districts. The following weekend, there was a feast of interstate football at the MCG much to the anguish of cricketers who wanted to see the end of the football and the start of the cricket season. East Fremantle, the Premiers from Western Australia, took on a combined league team and the Premiership of Australia match, the VFL champion South Melbourne, took on the South Australian Premiers West Adelaide. Perhaps it was home ground advantage or perhaps the superiority of the VFL, but the local teams won both games easily, albeit in front of a small crowd of 8,000 spectators. After the thrilling final series, it was time to focus on cricket. The year was almost closed out without further incident. South Melbourne had their smoke nights to celebrate their win. The female supporters even got together to present cufflinks to the players to mark their success. All seemed to be going well. Then, in the last of the VFL delegates meeting at the end of November, after all the other business had been dealt with, Melbourne's delegate, Mr J.A. Harper, dropped something of a bombshell when he raised issues of professionalism, accused several clubs of focusing on the gate-takings rather than the good of the game, the problems of clubs selecting umpires, which resulted in umpires trying not to become unpopular and hence losing their position, rather than selecting umpires by a lot, the need to reform how players were judged once reported. This needed to be done by an independent panel rather than delegates. There also needed to be a limit on how long people could be delegates at the VFL. No more than three years to ensure people did not begin to feel entitled. After a series of murmurs of dissent, the meeting listened in silence at this critique of their conduct. The chair suggested that there had been many issues raised and the notes would be added to the meeting and would be considered later. We will see if anything eventuates from this broadside in the next season.
We will leave 1909 there, south for premiers having overcome the all-conquering blues. More people than ever were coming to watch the game with the half-day Saturday now established in the retail industry. But, as Mr Harper from Melbourne had identified, even as it succeeded, the league had challenges to address. Join me next time as we look at the 14th season of the VFL in 1910 and see which clubs lead the ladder and what reforms, if any, would the league be willing to adopt. Before I leave, a special call out on one reference that has been useful in this episode and will be called on in future episodes too. If you enjoy your football history, check out On The Take, the 1910 scandal that changed Australian football forever by Tony Joel and Matthew Turner. And, as you heard in that title, 1910 is going to be an interesting year. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks, and I hope you join me next time.